the pandemic, social unrest, the state, and the White House. You are listening to The John DePietro Show. Well, folks, good afternoon. It's John DePietro on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. Right now it is 106 on this Thursday, October 28th. It's The John DePietro Show. We start at 11. And we go until 2 with AM 1380, 99.9 FM, this portion of the program. Folks, it's fresh by JKL Engineering. The heating season is here. Have you turned on the heat yet? Let JKL design and install a natural gas, high-efficiency carrier infinity system. Energy-efficient, quiet, more affordable than you think. If you're saying no gas, guess what? No problem. Let JKL Engineering design and install a high-efficiency heat pump system, including ductless splits. Hits in the winter, cools in the summer. These units are so efficient, it can reduce your oil bill by as much as 90%. Call J.K.L. Engineering today at 401-351-7600. Remember, with J.K.L., you can reduce your oil bill by as much as 90%. They have the highest rebates in the market. And they also do new installation replacement of high-efficiency gas boilers. J.K.L. for 55 years, reputation second to none, licensed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Call J.K.L. right now. Estimates are free. Financing is available, both residential and commercial. Call J.K.L. They do it right. They do it right the first time. Come on, Bellingham. Come on, Lincoln. 401-351-7600. If you can hear my voice, call JKL. Say, I want to save money on my oil bill. 401-351-7600. Well, folks, good afternoon. It's Juan. As always, visit the website, depetro.com. We have the latest stories and videos up, and there's a lot there. Thank you again for voting us. Best local news site by the readers of Rhode Island Monthly. And depetro.com, brought to you by Pat Elson, Caldwell Banker Realty. Based out of Cumberland, 20 years experience, call Pat. Licensed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, 401-474-5253. You know, it is a good housing market if you're dealing with a professional. This is no time to deal with amateur hour. Call, you know, I got to, you know, how about someone that says the first time, gee, I've never done one of these types of uh, things before. Pat Elston, 401-474-5253. You know, I mentioned... Channel 12 has a piece on the housing market and uh, housing hurdle. Finding finding a place to rent is so difficult. You know what? Right now, let me just, you know, why not? I'll play along. Let me, I want to hear some of this. And let's see if they mention at all the situation with the amount of illegals that are taking up a lot of low-income housing. So I'd I'd love to be wrong about this, but in the past, normally they never mention anything like that. But let's let's listen to this piece on housing hurdle, a digital original. Now you've heard about it, the affordable housing crisis in the state. But what's causing it, and what's being done to solve it? Two questions I have for local housing experts across the state. They say it's a combination of factors, but COVID-19 magnified all of those problems. I went to Brenda Clement, Director of Housing Works RI, a research and policy organization that analyzes housing at Roger Williams University to figure out why the housing crisis has become an epidemic. She says the complex situation can be boiled down to a simple answer. Uh, We know there's a housing crisis going on in this state, but in your expertise or with your expertise, why is this happening? We do not have enough housing units. We have simply been underproducing housing units for a long period of time in Rhode Island, really since the late 1970s and 1980s. Yes, we've done some building in Rhode Island, but just not enough uh, to keep up with demand and pace. So it's a basic kind of economics issue. You know, you've got uh, limited supply, uh, high demand, prices go up, often out of the reach of the average worker. She says the lack of housing can have an impact on the whole family. We know, you know, that way too many children are, are housing is um, unstable or their families are. And so they move frequently. They move uh, between school systems. They get behind very quickly um, in that process. And so try to provide that stable base for uh, children in particular is critical. Um, nothing works right unless you have that safe and decent place to get up from every day and to go back to every night. And as I said, you know, way too many Rhode Islanders um, do not have that security. But overall, 
Simmons says the math isn't adding up. She says the average state renter income of $34,255 could not afford rent in any Rhode Island city or town. The situation is definitely much more dire at the lower income level, but yes, um, we are seeing it creep up like back into middle income and middle income workers as well, too. As I said, um, $34,000 for median renter income, you can't afford it anywhere, even if you're earning the uh, median household income of $63,000. Leaving renters in a market that not only doesn't have enough units, but also doesn't have rent they can afford. You know, it's not uncommon uh, in this tight market for us to see rental prices of two or three bedroom units of $1,500 or more, uh, which is, you know, well beyond the reach of um, somebody who is working as a home health aide or as a retail clerk or providing um, childcare supports. And these were workers during the COVID, uh, during COVID with that we considered essential workers, right, and critical workers workers who we had cheery TV ads for, those are the people who are struggling the most. Bottom line, even if you are making more than average, she says, the affordability issue can affect everyone. Even if you earn a million dollars and there's only homes that are a billion dollars uh, available, you have an affordability issue. At the higher income level, those choices become, you know, you, you don't buy a second car or you don't put more into savings. As we get lower down the income spectrum, those choices become much higher. You have to choose between food and eating, uh, food and rent. You have to choose between paying the utility bill or picking up your prescription. And it tends to be even harder if you are of a certain ethnicity or age group. Huh. Clement says minority communities and seniors are bearing the brunt of this. A lot of seniors, um, uh, particularly as they get older, you know, they're on very limited fixed income. But unfortunately, you know, and uh, we are seeing higher concentrations of um, of issues in um, uh, in certain communities, like Central Falls and Providence, and also among minority uh, Why is that? Renters and uh, minority renters uh, and minority homeowners tend to have a higher percentage of cost burden. And just like when it came to the housing shortage in our state, she says renters coming in from different seats are making units even harder to find. People compete. Uh, we see a lot of pressure from um, Massachusetts, New York, and Connecticut, particularly as remote work you know, seems to be, at least for some workers, a thing that's going to last for a long period of time. Lots of people with higher income came into the state, and so lower income and lower wage Rhode Islanders um, can't compete. So do you think the solution to this problem would be to just build more housing, or is it getting better jobs to people so they can afford that housing. So it, it's both. It's it's an it's not an either or. It's, it is both um, that people need jobs jobs that pay them to uh, well to cover all of their life expenditures. The top ten fastest growing jobs in Rhode Island are jobs that do not pay a, wa a housing wage or a wage that would allow people to afford the average rent or the average mortgage payment. And Clement says that while COVID hurt everyone, she feels it also put a spotlight on the housing issue, especially when it comes to government funding. In my mind, 2020 was, you know, 2020 vision, it kind of laser focused on this issue. And we've seen a lot of interest and issue at both the General Assembly and on the federal level about providing resources for housing. This year, the General Assembly passed for the very first time uh, a dedicated funding stream in our state God. budget for the production. Of Hold on, let's just stop the tape. Folks, again, I, I'm not trying to, it's a Channel 12 piece. It's very in-depth. Notice the person they talked to from Roger Williams doesn't even mention the everything she said. It, that is true, but you're talking about low-income housing, low-income housing. And if you go into certain areas, and again, I'll mention Providence in certain streets and then see who's living there. You, the, she doesn't even, it's not even mentioned illegals they mention people from other states but they don't mention people from other countries and living multiple people in a unit right six people living in a two-bedroom apartment or even more sometimes so that's taking the place of a low-income unit i know myself an apartment that i lived in in college um off campus and had, there were four of us. So I had three roommates, four guys. 
today there were illegals living in that apartment. So there aren't college kids living there. Now, it is true. It is true with some people who have moved to the state, some people that live either in Massachusetts or New York that suddenly say, oh, really, I can I can work remotely. Well, in that case, I have a, you know, a summer home in Narragansett or somewhere in Rhode Island. So I'm going to if I can work remotely, I'm going to work from there. That that is true. That has happened. I agree. But this business of just build more units so there's not a lot of low income units, they're not addressing to me who really has been coming in here. That's really what it is. Now, folks, with some of the national news, um, first of all, as we covered some of it yesterday, Merrick Garland was uh, rightfully really raked over the coals yesterday. And, and rightfully so, by the way. So, But I go back to, you know, I know some people just want to focus what's going on in, in our area. But many times the answer can be somewhere else where certain things are going wrong. And I love the fact this was on Morning Joe, Politico. Biden's plummeting popularity rating is a real indicator of trouble for Terry McAuliffe in the race for governor of Virginia. Democrats are not engaged. Let's hear some of this. There are some particulars uh, the national dynamics that are playing into this. One is Joe Biden's plummeting popularity rating is a real indicator of trouble for McAuliffe. Uh, Democrats are not engaged. Uh, whatever momentum, legislative momentum may have been there early on uh, that had generated so much enthusiasm and excitement among all facets of the Democratic Party, that's gone. That's been sapped. Uh, and really what you're seeing is a lingering sort of maze, basically from the COVID fight where people are just saying you should be out of this pandemic. It should be going better. Uh, you look at all the public polling data and that's really where uh, the Democratic Party and Biden in particular are struggling. Struggling is a good word. Failing is a better word. So, but I also like this, you know, Terry McAuliffe again dismissed the fact that there was a sexual assault. Fellow student in a high school bathroom. Folks, people said when you have gender neutral bathrooms, what could happen? And all these parents were complaining about it and there was a cover up. And now we're finding out that it was, in fact, true. Listen to this story from NBC News. In the center of a firestorm, parents demanding resignations after they say a sexual assault on campus was covered up. Now, it's a hot-button issue in the state's very tight governor's race. Here's Katie Beck. You failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. In Loudoun County, Virginia, last night, parents reach a boiling point. Once again, school board members facing the heat. Resign or be... Many parents demanding new leadership after they say a sexual assault at a county school was covered up by administrators to advance a transgender bathroom policy. Oh my God. And we will take back our schools. A judge finding this week a 14-year-old male student guilty on two counts of sexual assault. Officials saying he wore a skirt, entered a girl's bathroom, and assaulted a 15-year-old female student in May. He was later accused of assaulting another student at another school in October. School leaders say they notified authorities of both allegations immediately, though at a June meeting, the superintendent saying this. Do we have assaults in our bathrooms or our locker rooms? To my knowledge, we don't have any records of assaults occurring in Wow. Why? Angry parents calling that a lie after the release of an internal email sent from the superintendent to school board members in May, notifying them of the incident. Ian Pryor has two children attending Loudoun schools. They knew that this controversial bathroom policy that they were trying to pass would get derailed if that news got out. The superintendent recently apologized, saying he wrongly interpreted the question and does not believe there was any intent to deceive. Oh, my Yesterday, God. students walking out in protest saying they did not... You know, this is all part of the agenda. They wanted this transgender bathroom. You have people abusing it. Young males, hormones raging. And then committing assaults in the, the ladies' room, in the girls' room. Can you even say that anymore? Folks, this is how outrageous and ridiculous this whole thing has become. 
that you're not even supposed to say it anymore. Yes, girls' room, boys' room. Don't say that anymore. Now it's all the same. Joke. And then they lie about it. Then they lie about it, as a matter of fact. Now, something that we played yesterday that um, really, really uh, terrific. I want to replay, folks. This was Senator Tom Cotton going after Merrick Garland on that memo calling parents terrorists. Let's hear this again. Sticking the feds on parents at school boards across America. When you crafted that October 4th memo, did you consult with senior leadership at the FBI? My understanding was that the memo um, or the idea of the memo had been discussed with the FBI before. Did anyone at the FBI express any doubt or disagreement or hesitation with your decision to issue that memo? No one expressed that to me. No one? To me. No one expressed that to me, no. Because a lot of them have contacted us and they said they did, Judge. I'm sorry? A lot of FBI officials have contacted my office and said that they opposed this decision. Well, I doubt any of them spoke to me about it because I didn't speak to, to uh, no one. All right. All right. To me. Uh, Judge, you've repeatedly, you've repeatedly dissembled this morning about that directive. For instance, about the National Security Division. Chuck Grassley asked you a very simple question, why you would sick the National Security Division of the Department of Justice on parents. John Cornyn asked you the same thing. You said it wasn't in your October 4th memorandum. It was in another office's memorandum. It wasn't another office's memorandum, Judge. It was in a press release from your office right here in front of me, October 4th, 2021, for immediate release. You're going to credit task force that includes the National Security Division. What on earth does the National Security Division have to do with parents who are expressing disagreements yep. at school boards? That's right. Nothing in this memorandum. Or any memorandum is about parents expressing disagreements with their school boards. The memorandum makes clear that uh, parents are entitled and protected by the First Amendment to have vigorous debates. We don't, uh, uh, the Justice Department is not interested in that question at all. It is oh, okay, so even in that case, what, what is the National Security Division, Judge? The these are the people that are supposed to be chasing jihadists and Chinese spies. What does the National Security Division have to do with parents? At school boards. This is not, again, about parents at school boards. This is about threats of violence. Okay, let me, let me turn to that because you've said that phrase repeatedly throughout the morning. Threats, violence, and threats of violence. Violence and threats of violence. Yeah. We've heard it a dozen times this morning. As Senator Lee pointed out, the very first line in your October 4th memorandum refers to harassment and intimidation. Why do you continue to dissemble in front of this committee that you are only talking about violence and threats of violence when your memo says harassment and intimidation? Senator, I said in, it, uh, in my testimony that it involved other kinds of criminal conduct, and, the, and I explained to Senator Lee that the uh, statutory definitions of those terms and the constitutional definitions of those terms involve threats of violence. Okay, let's look at one of those statutes you cited, yeah. Section 223. Yeah. That statute covers the use of not just telephones, but telecommunications devices to annoy, to annoy someone. So are, are you going to sick your U.S. attorneys and the FBI on a parents group if they post on Facebook something that annoys a school board member, Judge? The answer to that is no, and the provision that I was particularly uh, drawing to his attention was 2261A. Which was to engage. In I wasn't talking about 2261. I know you mentioned that. You also mentioned 223. That's what I mentioned. Yeah, but the okay, you, judge, you also told you also told Senator Klobuchar that this memorandum was about meetings and coordination. Yeah. Meetings and coordination. Yeah. Well, I have in my hand right here that I'll submit to the record a letter from one of your U.S. attorneys to all of the county attorneys, to the attorney general, to all sheriffs, to the school board association of his state, in which he talks about. Federal investigation and prosecution. It's not about meetings, it's not about coordination, it's about federal investigation and prosecution. I did, you, did you direct your U.S. attorneys to issue such a letter? I did not. I have not seen that letter. My it's got three pages. It's got three pages well, my of spreadsheet my about all the federal crimes that a, that a parent could be charged with, to include the ones you cited. Did, did, my memorandum. Did Maine Justice make this spreadsheet, Judge? I don't have any idea. Uh, my Did memorandum speaks specifically about setting up meetings, and I'll just read it again, convene meetings to 
Judge, we, we've all read your memorandum. We've also you heard you dissemble about your memorandum. I have, I have, and the record now shows, one of your U.S. attorneys sending out a letter about federal prosecution investigation and list in detail wow. the federal statutes for which you could be prosecuted. Judge, you talked a lot about intimidation and harassment. Have you issued a memorandum like your October 4th memorandum about the Black Lives Matter rights from last summer? You're talking about the, the summer of 2020? In the summer of 2020, there yes. were crimes committed. People haven't been there were a lot of prosecutions, yet. and they were under the previous administration. Okay, Judge, what about this? It is no doubt, you're, 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 even though parents at school boards aren't within federal jurisdiction, there's no doubt that federal officials are. You keep saying senators. Have you started an investigation into the harassment of Senator Kirsten Sinema in a bathroom? Right. In a bathroom? Because yep. she won't go along? With the Democratic Party's right. tax and spend agenda? Yep. That is a sitting United States senator being harassed in a bathroom. I don't know whether the senator has referred the matter to the Justice Department or not. You cited as a basis for that directive the National School Board Association's letter of September 29th. Was that directive being prepared before September 29th, before the School Board Association letter was issued? I don't believe so. Certainly, I didn't have any idea. So it was only prepared at... Okay, I think that answers the question. I already answered that so, question. So you, you keep citing the school board letter and news reports. That's news right. One of the news reports cited in that letter, which you presumably mean, is from Loudoun County, Virginia. No, that Scott, is not, that is not um, uh, what I was talking about. Well, talking about you keep citing news reports, and that's the most prominent news report that anyone in America has seen. That refers to Scott Smith, whose 15-year-old daughter was raped. She was raped in a bathroom by a boy wearing girls' clothes. And the Loudoun County School Board covered it up. That's right. Because it would have interfered with their transgendered policy yep. during Pride Month. And that man, Scott Smith, because he went to a school board and tried to defend his daughter's rights, was condemned internationally. Do you apologize to Scott Smith and his 15-year-old daughter, Judge? Senator, anyone who is... A uh, child was raped as uh, is a, the most horrific crime I can imagine, and is certainly entitled and protected by the First Amendment to protest to their school board about that. But he was cited by the school board association That's fine, as a domestic not... terrorist, which we now know that led right. those reports were the basis for your. Oh, no, this no, is Senator, this is shameful. Judge, that's, this is shameful. This, here, this testimony, your directive, your performance is shameful. Okay. That's not. But, thank God you are not on the Supreme Court. You should resign in disgrace, Judge. Wow. Governor Garland, do you want to complete your answer? Okay, I wasn't sure there was a question there, but let me be clear. Hold on, let me just hear that part again. And that's the most prominent news report that anyone in America has seen. That refers to Scott Smith, whose 15-year-old daughter was raped. She was raped in a bathroom by a boy wearing girls' clothes. And the Loudoun County School Board covered it up. Because it would have interfered with their transgendered policy during Pride Month. And that man, Scott Smith, because he went to a school board and tried to defend his daughter's rights, was condemned internationally. Do you apologize to Scott Smith and his 15-year-old daughter, Judge? Senator, anyone whose child was raped as uh, the most horrific crime I can imagine, and is certainly entitled and protected by the First Amendment to protest to their school board about that. But he was cited by the school board association That's fine, as a domestic not... terrorist, which we now know that letter and those reports were the basis of your... Oh, this, no, this is, Senator, this is wrong. shameful. Judge, that's, this is shameful. This, here, this testimony, your directive, your performance is shameful. That's not... Cr- thank God you are not on the Supreme Court. Wow. You should resign in disgrace, Judge. Oh. Wow. Oof. Garland, do you want to complete your answer? Oh, okay, I wasn't wow. sure there was a question there, but let me be clear. Uh, the news reports I'm talking about were not the news reports <laughs> in that letter. They were wow. not the news reports that everybody here has heard about, subsequent reports that everybody has heard about. Woo. We are. There is nothing in this memorandum, and I wish if senators were concerned about this, they would quote my words. This memorandum is not about... Parents being able to object in their school boards. They are protected by the First Amendment. You said it out. Threats of violence, they are completely protected. So 
parents can object to their school boards about curriculum, about the treatment of their children, um, about school policies. All of that is 100% protected by the First Amendment, and there is nothing in this memorandum contrary to that. We are only trying to prevent violence against school officials. Wow, folks. Again, uh, I know that was a little long, but worth hearing. Senator Tom Cotton. Folks, good afternoon at 131. You're listening to the John DePietro Show on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. This portion of the program, folks, is brought to you by Allstate Lock. It's on DePietro.com. Experts in locking systems, building security, security cameras. You want to protect yourself? I'll tell you, security cameras, you need security cameras at your home, at your business. Protect yourself. All state lock. Again, there's a link on the website to beatjoe.com. So that is U.S. Senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton. The guy is um, is just a, is amazing. And um, and he really served up Merrick Garland. I'm telling you, watch that race in Virginia right now. Now, I also want to play, and I think this is interesting. That even CNN, folks, shocked by the sharp uh, decline in economic growth under President Biden. Let's hear this piece. We have breaking news. Brand new GDP numbers for quarter three released just moments ago. I've got no idea what they are. Chief Business Correspondent Christy Romas does. 2%. That is less than expected. And it's a downshift from the spring when we had a really robust 6.7% economic growth. And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, no surprise here. The Delta variant was surging. So there were new restrictions that people put on themselves, frankly, because of, of the Delta variant. Supply chain bottlenecks, rising prices, and that acute worker shortage. All of these things were at play uh, in the quarter. So, John, look at the trajectory here. This is 2.7%. So a sharp deceleration from what we saw in the spring before we had two percent a big part of it is the supply chain folks how about the fact they're saying elon musk and jeff bezos the two of them are worth half a trillion dollars half a trillion dollars marco rubio florida senator this plan is not with with uh President Biden, build back better. Whoever came up with that? Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio says this plan is build back back socialism. socialism. Unfortunately, the media, the way they're going to report it is not what it is. The whole focus is going to be on the fake top line number, right? The squad wanted $7 trillion. The Democratic budget said $3.5 trillion. But today, the deal, whether it's $1.5 or $1.75 or $2 trillion, it doesn't matter. It's still socialism. It's still build back socialism. The media and the pundits are going to claim that this proves that Biden is this great deal maker, bridging the divide between the big government socialists and the huge government socialists. So it's going to fall on those of us who know the truth and see this plan for what it is to inform you, the American people. This plan is not build back better. As I said, this plan is to build back socialists. And the problem is, and again, folks, good afternoon. It's Juan. It's the John DePietro Show on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. The entire Rhode Island delegation is behind it. And as a matter of fact... The entire Massachusetts delegation is behind it. I want to go to the piece that I mentioned. I referenced earlier in the Boston Globe. Dan McGowan, who we talked to just yesterday, and he talked about these just, he writes how the education system has hit rock bottom. In another year, we'd be declaring a state emergency in public education. The Rhode Island Foundation would launch another task force. A rock bottom moment for education in Rhode Island. State lawmakers would grandstand with bills that often do more harm than good. Some advocates would call for the education commissioner's head, while others use the abysmal results as another reason to blame the teachers' union. This was the most disruptive year any of us can remember, and officials of Rhode Island can point out that even high-achieving peers in Massachusetts, Connecticut, also saw drops in their test scores, but not to the extent of Rhode Island. So the message out of Infante Green's office right now sounded like one from a professional sports team that can't seem to get its act together. Stay the course. Trust the process. 
Fonte Green said, this is a clear call to action. The question for officials in our state, and again, folks, this is Dan McGowan of the Boston Globe, is whether they can take action without messing things up even more. All Rhode Islanders should be alarmed. Only 33% of students are reading at grade level. 33% of students are reading at grade level. 20% of kids are doing math at grade level. Another year of education summits, bad bills, finger pointing isn't going to help. And no, gleefully reviewing the data to fit your own narrative agenda isn't productive either. If you hate the state takeover of Providence, this will confirm your fears. If you dislike charter schools, you pound them too. Same goes for the anti-union crowd. He says, let's consider this rock bottom moment for education Rhode Island. Allows everyone to account for real challenges presented. Gives a baseline held accountable. Starts at the very top. Governor McKee said he wants to extend her contract. State Council on Education would be wise to build a true measure of accountability into the New Deal. He writes, let's aim for a real path to 75% proficiency goal for third graders that Governor Armando had set a few years ago. Same goes with the takeover. But folks, it is, um, listen, this, but you, but the thing is, who's not at fault? I, I, it's, it's not the students. And I would say if it's not even the parents. It started, I go back to, right now at 137. You know, you, Governor Mundo said Rhode Island was number one in distance learning. I was there. I question, what does that mean we're number one in distance learning? I find that impossible to believe. And it was all false. This is not as difficult as it should be. But there needs to be some relief. If you're listing right now at 138 on this Thursday and your children, you pay for them to go to a private school or to a Catholic school. There should be some relief for that. The public schools formula is failing. The worst school districts are Providence, Central Falls, Pawtucket, Cranston, West Warwick, Woonsocket. That's just a fact, going by the numbers. Providence, Central Falls, Pawtucket, Cranston, West Warwick, Woonsocket. 95% of students cannot do grade level math. Not 95%, what does that tell you? Now, all of the fighting that's been going on. But also, you can't ignore the focal point that has been on, you know, let's make sure... Much like, you know, the gender-neutral bathrooms, um, trying to go along with with uh, different agendas that people have. You know, th- this is a tough time. It's a tough time for parents that are trying to go along and you try to send your child to a good school, but the focal point is not there. Instead, look at the headline. Rhode Island prepares to welcome Afghan family of six. Dorcas says 250 evacuees. Are they going to help the education system or hurt? Now, listen, I am not saying that they're to blame or turn anything, anything upside down. But it's, it's where is your focus? Where is the focus on this? A family of six who fled Afghanistan will arrive in Rhode Island early next week. They're saying 250 Afghan evacuees. A dozen came to Rhode Island on their own earlier. But now they need to start putting them with Rhode Island families. Governor McKee wrote to President Biden in August saying Rhode Island stands ready to welcome as many as you can send us. It was supposed to be 150. Now it's 250. Rhode Island is opening its arms. Well, after leaving Afghanistan, the family six arrived at Fort Dix military base in New Jersey, which was where actually is a federal prison where Mayor Sancy was, where he was um, when he left there, Fort Dix, D-I-X. There was a running joke that he was no longer the Prince of Providence. He was now the Prince of uh, Fort Dix. But anyhow, where the federal government conducted vetting. Uh, vaccination process supposedly they cleared them for resettlement in Rhode Island 
family plans to stay in temporary housing in Providence before Dorcas will find them permanent housing. And the mother's pregnant, so it'll soon be a family of seven. Well, that's good news. Ah, other Afghan families are coming very, very soon. You know what? I think all of this, whatever happened, a charity begins at home. God, the education system is just appalling. It is. And, but here's what it's going to become, right? If you people vote, as they say, with their feet. Who would stay there? The only people that are staying in some of these school districts are going to be people, unfortunately, that can't afford to move anywhere else. That's really what it's going to come down to. So, um, but what has been the focal point? What has been the focus? Um. The Democrat Party bears responsibility. How about the fact in Portland, skyrocketing crime? Let's listen to this piece. They no longer feel safe as the number of violent crimes rises. Yeah, our Liz Birch watched that city council meeting. She's live now. Liz, what are some of their complaints? Well, Jeff, they had a long list, but it really boils down to this. They say it's just too dangerous for their employees to be working in Portland right now. They say they're threatened, even assaulted regularly. Our employees are scared. Today, local businesses brought up homeless tent fires, increased violence, burglaries, open drug use, and constant vandalism in Portland. Truly unbelievable scenes right outside our buildings. Ranging from individuals walking down the street with machetes ah. to being directly harassed by individuals who are in an altered state. A concern other business owners echoed. I moved back to Portland specifically to start assault. My team members have been held up and assaulted multiple times. Their cars have been broken into and vandalized. Who wants to put up with that? Who in their right mind? Folks, and that's what they want to turn Providence into. With these injection centers, you know, as people then want to go to the injection center, there's going to be an increase in crime. They're going to commit robberies in order to get the money to buy the heroin and fentanyl. So all of that is uh, is something to be considered. But I don't hear anyone. No one is speaking out saying, you know, maybe if we have these injection centers, that this probably won't be positive for families that want to live in the area, right? Maybe that, maybe a lot of families, it wouldn't be good for families that want to try to live where in a state where they're basically going to uh, be legalizing drug use of heroin and fentanyl and meth. So, you know, and, and all this I'm seeing right now, uh, proud 90% of adults are vaccinated in Rhode Island. Governor McKee, way to go. You know, let's keep it going. We're not this. I think all of that, but like enough of the enough of the backslapping. Um, President Biden spoke and he's talking about this historic framework for the spending bill that they have. So they've cut a lot of things out. This was a short time ago. Let me, um, let's hear some of this now. President Biden, folks. I'm pleased to announce that after, after months of tough and thoughtful negotiations, I think we have an historic, I know we have a historic economic framework. It's a framework that will create millions of jobs, grow the economy, invest in our nation and our people. Turn the climate crisis into an opportunity and put us on a path not only to compete, but to win the economic competition for the 21st century against China and every other major country in the world. It's fiscally responsible. It's fully paid for. 17 Nobel Prize winners in economics have said it will lower the inflationary pressures on the economy. Over the next 10 years, it will not add to the deficit at all. It will actually reduce the deficit, according to economists. 
I want to thank my colleagues in the Congress for the leadership. We spent hours and hours and hours over months and months working on this. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on. I've long said compromise and consensus are the only way to get big things done in a democracy. Important things done for the country. The progressives hate it. And the progressives are going to go to war over it. They are. So he can try to claim it's some kind of a big victory. Uh, I, I don't see it that way. I do not see it as, um, I don't think it is, of, of any type of uh, victory. So now I also want to play, um, folks, the, the health care worker shortage, and especially in, in nursing homes, by the way, that's a real crisis where they're denying people to come in. Channel 10 did a piece on this. Governor McKee has not addressed this as of yet. But something's got to be done about this. And this comes down to his mandate with the frontline workers. So let's listen to, and again, folks, good afternoon. It's John DiPietro on this Thursday. This was the Channel 10 story on the uh, shortage at the... Worse than ever before. NBC 10 IT reporter Tamara Sikarsik takes a yep. closer look at the problem that some say could collapse the entire industry. How about that? Tamara? Wow. That's right, Gene and Patrice. 99% of nursing homes across the country are facing staffing shortages. It's even more problematic here in Rhode Island with the new staffing minimum level mandate less than three months away. We have facilities that are denying admissions because they can't staff. Dozens of nursing homes, hundreds of open jobs. Right now we have anywhere from 25 to 50 open positions. How are you going to stay open through all this? It's a very good question. The I-team discovered there were 700 open positions at Rhode Island nursing homes in July. Rhode Island Healthcare Association President John Gage believes that number has jumped by another 300 since the vaccination mandate took effect. It's costing us in the way, by way of overtime. It's costing us, you know, bonuses. We're using outside staffing agencies to supplement our own staff. And those agencies are really gouging us for, for the price that they're charging. Deborah Griffin is the administrator of Hattie I. Chasey Home in East Providence. She believes other health care agencies are scooping up qualified employees, offering incentives like big sign-on bonuses. It's home care, it's hospitals, it's assisted living. I can't compete with that. It's also been taking longer for certified nursing assistants to get their license. A problem Gage says is spurred by the exam being outsourced to a company in Pennsylvania. They contract with a company called Credentia, and Credentia only currently has three sites that are doing CNA testing. Um, And one testing site only tests one Sunday a month. Meanwhile, the industry has little time to find candidates as facilities face a January 1st deadline for a new staffing mandate that requires even more employees. For that to happen, something needs to change. Something needs to change. Something needs to change. Well, now, despite the hundreds of open positions, I found 42 registered nurses and 123 CNAs are collecting unemployment benefits in Rhode Island as of last week. For the NBC Tonight team, I'm Tamara Sikarczyk. But folks, a big part of that comes down to good piece. A big part of that comes down to this mandate, the mandate that that Governor McKee put put in. And I'm just not sure how they're going to be able to get around it. Um, you're going to have people that are not being welcomed into, they, they, they can't get someone into a nursing home because they don't have the staff. Um, that's a major problem. That's a major problem. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't see it really, you know, yesterday Governor McKee had the COVID briefing and it seemed to focus, you know, it was obviously on schools and tests in school, whatever it is. I still don't even understand why that's the priority. Where they should be, where we are fortunate, is the fact that COVID has not put young people, you know, overwhelming the hospitals, period. I also, I still think the media does not do a good job 
when they're reporting that someone tested positive for COVID. I think that's still a problem. I just saw, um, I came across, I forget who it was. It was like another high-profile individual where they didn't, they just mentioned that the person had tested positive. But I, um, but they didn't, they didn't come out. And mention the fact that the person was showing no symptoms. So let me just check some other headlines. What are the frustration mounts among NFL owners over the the Washington football team scandal? Is that what they're saying? WFT, Washington football team. Washington football team scandal. Oh, right. All right. Um, How it's been handled. Well, that's the whole John Gruden thing that, that actually that President uh, excuse me, Tim Dodd had talked about. I'm also seeing this. Uh, Ex-NHL player sexual assault by coach comes forward. Huh. This is a developing story. Chicago Blackhawk, John Doe, sexually assaulted by video coach. Former suing the franchise, failing to act on sexual assault claims he aired against the team's former video coach. Uh, suppressed this memory, buried the memory, chased my dream, blah, blah, blah. Um, the athlete said he felt relief vindication. Independent review slammed the NHL for turning a blind eye from a video coach, sexually assaulted, harassed a, blunt, uh, a player uh, during the 2010 season, Stanley Cup season. Um, let's see. 31-year-old player, so he's playing in Germany. Bury the secret, suffered impact his life. Uh, been part of the Blackhawks squad during the postseason. Um, he was inappropriately molested by the video coach. I guess he was brought in as a young player. Is that what happened? All right. Now, there's another story that I I want to mention, folks. But first, before we do that, the uh, the Kyle Ruttenberg, that, that trial is going to be really interesting. And especially how the judge has certain set certain things in motion um, with Kyle Ruttenberg. But I want to remind you folks that this portion of the program is brought to you by, remember, surplus provisions. Stop in and see them. Pontiac Avenue, Cranston. They have tactical gear. They also have pepper spray. You know, you need to protect yourself. Stop by surplus provisions. Pontiac Avenue, Cranston. They're a mile from Garden City. Right off of uh, 95. And they also have a very uh, up-to-date Facebook page. Surplus Provisions, Pontiac Avenue in Cranston, where they have everything you need to keep yourself safe, keep your family safe. Stop in and see them. The Kyle Rundberg trial. So Rittenhouse, excuse me, Kyle Rittenhouse. So the judge has already said legal, uh, before the murder trial, a debate over terms like victim. Legal experts say the term victim could appear prejudicial during the self-defense case. He shot three men, killing two, during protests against police violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So Kyle Rittenhouse, the judge has decided that the word victim could not be used in court to refer to the people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot after the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year. And people are very upset about it. Legal experts say that determines who should be considered a victim. A case that hinges on Kyle Rittenhouse. Remember, he's the young kid assertion of self-defense. What jurors must decide in his trial, expected to begin next week. He's been charged with six criminal counts, including first-degree reckless homicide, first-degree intentional homicide, and attempted first-degree intentional homicide, and the deaths of two men wounding of another. Expected to argue he fired his gun because he feared for his life. Prosecutors say he was a violent vigilante who illegally possessed the rifle and whose actions resulted in chaos and bloodshed. So you remember, the shootings occurred two days after the Kenosha police officer shot Jacob Blake, trying to arrest him on a warrant, setting off widespread protests over police conduct. The dual scrutiny expected the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, but also of three people he shot, became clear this week when the judge reiterated a long-standing rule on criminal cases in his courtroom. 
the word victims may not be used before the jury in reference to those killed or injured. Now, by the way, that is a brave judge. The judge ruled on the motion and said he would allow the term looters and rioters to be used to refer to the men who were shot. If the defense is able to establish evidence that they were engaged in those activities that night. So you have three guys and the the prosecution wants to portray them as, as victims. But the judge said, no, no, no. They're going to be described as looters and rioters. That's who he shot. Kyle Rittenhouse. <laughs> Sitting there. God, he's so clean cut. Went there, dropped off, tried to defend these businesses. They were attacking him. Prosecutors now disagree, saying such words were loaded, inappropriate, described men who had been shot too fatally. Mr. Hubbard had died, come to downtown Kenosha, August of last year, to participate in the protest of the police shooting. Another one, Mr. Rosenbaum, who also had killed, to join the crowd for reasons that are unclear. Another one was the volunteers a medic at the protest. One of them was a child molester. Let the evidence show what the evidence shows, Drudge Schroeder said, adding, if the evidence demonstrated the men were shot, engaged by behavior, then I'm not going to tell the defense they can't call them that. <laughs> His rule on the word victim is not the norm, but not unheard of, legal experts said. We got to talk to our legal expert, Tim Dodd, about the The expert said the term victim can appear pre- uh, prejudicial in court of law, heavily influencing a jury. So he's saying, no, you're not going to refer to them as victims. They will be described as rioters and looters, which they were. Kyle Rittenhouse was being pursued fear for his life in the chaotic aftermath, third night of protests. In a self-defense case, the people who were shot are to some extent on trial said a law professor at the University of Wisconsin. Jury has to assess whether they were posing a threat of death or great bodily harm to Kyle Rittenhouse. To assess that, you have to look at their behavior and look at what Rittenhouse was aware of. Judge had been on the bench of Wisconsin several decades, spent many pre-trial hearings in the Rittenhouse case, parsing language, terminology, past behavior of the men who shot in actions of Rittenhouse in the months leading up to the shooting. Listen, good for the judge. He's exactly right, as a matter of fact. No, you're not going to refer to them as victims. They're looters and rioters. That's the language we're going to use in this case. Kyle Rittenhouse shot looters and rioters, not victims. Now, again, the prosecutors are out of their minds about this whole thing. Judge, they, all right, well, folks, listen, we are, um, stay tuned. It's John DePietro. Enjoy this Thursday. Right now it's 159. Uh, we're going to be back tomorrow at 11. I want you to stay tuned. You're going to hear the 2 o'clock news, and then it'll be the John Dion program. Remember, if there's breaking news, we will be there with Facebook Live. In the meantime, uh, please visit our website, depetro.com, depetro.com, which is brought to you by Brood Awakenings. So, again, um, stay tuned for the 2 o'clock news. The big news is President Biden thinks he has the framework for part of this big spending package, although I'm still not sure that it's there. All right, stay tuned. Enjoy this Thursday. WNRI, Socket.